0: Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Everson from Villanova University, and welcome to the Big East Rewind. The Big East Rewind came about when Sonny Sparrow and I from Syracuse University were on a recruiting trip and became friends. And we've been friends ever since. And we had a bond that is developed over playing in the very tough Big East Conference. The Big East Rewind is all about Big East basketball, old school style with the battles and stories that came about during our time playing in the Big East from the perspective of the media, coaches, former players, and even officials. So we hope you enjoy the Big East Rewind. On this edition of the Big East Rewind, Sonny and I speak with Craig Miller and Sean Ford from USA Basketball. Sean is the team director of USA Basketball, and Craig is the Chief Communications Officer. Both guys started at Villanova, and both guys went all the way to the USA Basketball, the Dream Team, and many, many, many Olympic Championships. You're going to like this one. It's very interesting. Sit back, relax, and check out this edition of the Big East Rewind. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Big East Rewind. I am your seven-foot host, Chuck Everson from Villanova, and my partner, my... Buddy, my point guard, the phenomenal Sonny Sparrow. How are you, Sonny?
1: I'm great, Chuck. I'm great, Chuck. It's nice to know you're seven feet. So when I put well, pictures up, listen, a lot of when people I put people pictures up, awesome. people are like, how big is that dude? <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. That's that comes with the territory, man. That comes with the territory. So uh, today we got a great show, Sonny. I don't know. Great show. Uh, we we've talked a little bit about it, but you know, two guys that, that basically got their starts at villanova i know them through my experience at villanova and went on to do big things with
1: usa basketball you know Chuck, and, we, um, ta- we talked we well. talked about this show for about three months we have we have back been, and right? forth you and i you and i like i was like really there go
0: come yeah, on yeah i yeah i i've been looking forward to doing this and uh it, it's going to be a lot of fun especially since they're such good guys so without any further ado Sonny, i'm going to introduce our guests today uh first off is an uh He's going to kill me for saying this, but that's okay. And Albion College Hall of Famer, Sonny, is with us today. A Hall of Another Famer. Another Hall of Famer. In two sports, two sports, lacrosse and football. And uh, got his start at Villanova. He was the sports information director for us during our championship run. He was a part of our whole group and is still a part of our group today. And he was the chief communications officer for USA Basketball, now recently retired. Almost. My main man, Craig Miller. How are you, Craig?
2: Good, Chuck. Almost retired.
0: Almost. That, yeah. Almost. It's
2: supposed another to be month, in right? December, but now another month. Yeah, Sean keeps dragging it out.
0: Yeah, who, who, well, we're still going to celebrate when you're done down in Florida. Don't even worry about that. So we'll take care yeah, of that for, for sure.
1: For those, for those of you listening and not watching, behind Craig over his shoulder is the 1992 USA basketball team photo. Yeah, Pretty the dream cool. team. Dream team pretty poster. cool. There it
2: is, and right to and to the other side
1: is, is, is the, the Villanova eighty-five,
2: the 85. 85 poster, cha- national championship poster.
1: That's yep. right. Chuck has it. Chuck has it somewhere. He's got. He probably has two of them. Come on, look, look what he said. <laughs>
0: well, that's true. Uh, and our and our other guest today also uh, started out at Villanova. Was a team manager back in eighty-six to nineteen ninety. And went on to do great things, and is now the men's national team director of USA Basketball, Sean Ford. Sean, thanks for joining us today, pal. Thanks,
3: thanks Chuck And Sonny. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have you exciting? Yeah, it it is. It is pretty exciting, and I, you know, I can't wait to dig into this with you guys. So let's get it. Let's get it started off. You know, Sean, you you come on to campus. I mean, did you? Uh, did, how did you get to, to be the manager at Nova when you started? And you came in with Tommy Grice and Rod Taylor and uh, Barry yeah. Beckerdam, right?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, it's funny. It was kind of like, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it had a lot to do with cable TV and the biggies being on cable TV. I grew up in Olean, New York, St. Bonaventure, you know, kind of snow country in the middle of nowhere, but you know, when I'm a junior in high school, you know, Vill- Georgetown, St. John's are one and two, Villanova wins a national championship. And we, ESPN comes to town, you know, uh, in cable and we're watching the big East games. And it's like, wow, that would be really cool to go to one of those schools. And, um, a family friend who was the sports information director at St. Bonaventure when I was really young and worked with my dad. His name was Tom McElroy, and Tom was hired as the third person at the Big East in '79-'80 to uh, be the, uh, the, the the sport you know the, uh PR director for the Big East. You know, obviously good friends with Craig now, and and you know I was talking to him about what I wanted to do and. My three schools were Boston College, Providence, and Villanova, and he put me in touch with Marty Marbach. And when I was a senior, and you know, we went down there for a visit. Um, my brother was a manager at Providence at the time. My, my senior year, he was a freshman at Providence. He kind of was going the same path, but he was a little more talented than I am. So he made it as a walk-on the next year. Um, and but we went to the Providence Villanova game after the game went out with, you know, the team, which was kind of funny, went to Smokey Joe's um, with my brother and we were tagging along date. Uh, you probably remember, you know, Carol Jensen, obviously, and uh, some of the Providence guys were friends and we were just hanging out. And I met, you know, on Monday, Coach Mass and Marty, and, you know, it, it worked out pretty good. And that was a senior in, in high school at the time. So I got into Villanova and I, ended up coming to work camp, my, you know, right after I graduated from high school, and the rest was history.
0: So when he had his teams, when coach had his his team of managers, he had basically one guy for each class, right? So you got that freshman spot?
3: That's pretty much they- how it, it happened. You know, what was interesting is that there wasn't, when I was a freshman, there wasn't a sophomore manager. There were two junior managers, you know, um, Neil McShay and, and John Lindblad. Right. And so, and then there was a halfway through, another kid became the a, a freshman manager. So it was a little bit, you know, a little bit different. Um, and, and we were all learning from Wolfie. So we were all That's um, scary. Well, yeah. well established on um, um, s- basketball and our social lives.
0: Well listen I I know you learned what to do and probably a little bit of what not to what do
1: not to do from, from
0: Wolfie <laughs> we had Wolfie on the show and he oh, was, he was okay. great we he was on with yeah. Dave Cerodi from uh from oh, Syracuse yeah. Yeah. and uh sure. we had a blast with him too I mean he's still he still got that wicked sense of humor and and yeah. uh he was one of coaches guys for sure I mean he he was one of the guys that was pretty close to him all the way through um, drove around. so Craig tell us how tell us how you came to be at at Villanova what was your path
2: well I had I'd been at a small college in Indiana Earlham College home of the hustling Quakers (laughs) um Del Harris actually coached there and I did a year there as a football coach women's lacrosse coach and sports information director and after going broke I knew I needed to get a real job and started uh wanting uh started emailing or mailing out to all the NCAA division one Uh, universities for openings in their sports information office. I knew I wanted, I had done two years of journalism, worked for a newspaper, but I knew I wanted to really get into college athletics, college communications. And so uh, as luck would have it, I had a friend who told me I should apply at Villanova and I'll be honest, I had never heard of it. And uh, this is in 1980, I applied there and Lord and behold, they had an opening. And so my choices came down to North Dakota State, DePaul College in Indiana, not DePaul University, Long Beach State, and Villanova. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, it was a crazy interview process. I was told that I was among the finalists, but that I had to come out for an interview. And I lived in Michigan at the time. And that Villanova being well-funded told me I had to come out on my own. So I drove out and uh, interviewed for the job, drove back home a day later was off of the job and told if I start, I could have started the next day. Wow. Uh, if I was on campus, cause football camp started the next day. And so literally I made four or five trips back and forth to Villanova. And uh, in 1980 was hired. My primary area's responsibility was to assist with basketball and football. And to do women's basketball and indoor track and field. And of course, Villanova at the time was, uh, I think, where they were uh, indoor champions, uh, defending indoor champions in track and field. Yeah. Jumbo Elliott was a coach there. But they had also, in 1980, of course, had just, had just joined the Big East. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was really the launching pad. I was really fortunate that um, my 10 years there uh, were just a, an amazing growth period for the athletic department.
0: Yeah, I mean, like you say, you came in right at the birth of the conference, right when everything just started to get rolling, and um, you know, and of course you worked uh, for Coach Mass. You know, as you moved up the, uh, the ladder and started to handle. Uh, at, at some point, you were the main guy for for the basketball program. Yeah, right? after a
2: year, after a year, Ted Wolfe left to go join the Meadowlands, and just opened up, and he became the PR director for the Meadowlands, okay. and uh, so I was interim. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Coach. Coach Mass didn't want to hire me. He wanted to hire his own person, and he felt I was from the old regime, and I was the athletic director's choice. And um, nonetheless, I got the job. And after taking whippings for the first year, just like you guys did on the court, yeah. Coach Mass did embrace me, taught me a, a, a tremendous amount that I still rely on a lot of the things that he told me and taught me. And you know, a couple of those. Chuck, as you know, accountability was everything to him. Credibility was everything to him. Right. And, uh, you know, he once told me, he said, if you lie with me, if you lie to me one time, you're done. I'll never trust you again. And uh, I, took that, I took that to heart. And I think I carried it on through not just at Villanova, but through the, through the rest of my career where I really tried to be a credible source for media and for coaches and for the um, administration of both organizations
0: you know craig you know thinking about what you just said you know you when you developed that relationship with coach going from being kind of the whipping boy to being one of the guys okay that took that had to develop your skill set to how are you going to handle people all the way through your career because you're dealing you're dealing with all kinds of personalities when you start dealing with dream teamers and hall of famers and you know, uh, superstars and stuff, that's got to be difficult at times. And I'm sure, uh, how did, how did Coach Mass, you know, the relationship between you and Coach, how did that help you handle some of the other difficult personalities? As we know, Coach was a little volatile at times, you know, how did that help you?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Part of it is, you know, as I said, I learned to be accountable. I did make mistakes. And if I made the mistakes, I... I owned up to him. I never lied about him. I never tried to cover up on him and coach is always forgiving. And if you did it twice, maybe not forgiving. I don't know that I ever made the same mistake twice. So accountability was a big thing. And then actions, you know, I remember, uh, it was my, my second year with the basketball team. And the first year hadn't gone well, because I wasn't part of his group, the circle. So literally I didn't team meals. I didn't eat with the team. Um, You know, you didn't do things with the team. And so I had a meeting with him just because I didn't want to continue to do men's basketball if it was going to be like that. And he pointed out some things that I hadn't done. I hadn't gone to pregame masses. And I said, well, I hadn't been invited. And he goes, well, you're invited now, so you better be at every one from here out. And uh, he told me that he thought our, our recruiting materials and our media guide were terrible. And I had just come back. It was the summertime. And I had just come back from the Big East sports information meetings. And I knew what everybody's budget was because we had compared. Dave Gavitt had got us all together. And we compared budgets. And Villanova's budget was the worst in the Big East at that time by a lot. And he told when I told him that, he said, he said no, I don't believe you. And I said, I have the document that they, they distributed. And he said, well, go get it and bring it to me. So I, I, I went and got it. And I brought it to him. And I think, again, he was testing a little bit of my credibility. Was I exaggerating? Was I lying? I gave him the document that the Big East had produced or that we had produced as uh, PR people. And uh, he said, OK, we'll take care of this. And I'm not kidding you. The next day, I got a letter. The only letter I got from Father Dobbins saying that our budget for publications had gone up like fourfold, Wow. four times what we were spending. And and I never forgot. I went down to Coach Massive and He goes, of course, we got that. He goes, now nah, we'll see what you're made of. So um, yeah. it was, you know, that was kind of things you learned. So I learned by, you have to do, you know, you have to you have to put in the work, obviously, and then actions. You know, your actions speak the truth. If you're working hard and doing the right things, you know, people will acknowledge it and see that and respect you for that. And, you know, my career at USA Basketball has been been uh, really amazing. The coaches I've worked with, that's been part of the best best thing. There's coaches that, um I never knew when I was at Villanova but you would have thought they might have been from the dark side and then once you get to meet them yeah um you really you really and I'm sure Sean can speak to that can really you really start to enjoy it I mean a, a great example is coach Bayheim. you know coach Mass and coach Beheim and Villanova Syracuse went at it and the first time I worked with coach Beheim, I, I loved him I mean he was he was tremendous to me he was a great guy to be around he was funny, which I never knew he was. You know, you just don't ever see that side of him. And uh, I had a lot of years of fun with with Coach Coach
1: uh, Sean, I got to ask you um, since we're talking about Coach Mass, let, let's let's expand on that a little bit. Talk a little bit about some of your relationships with Coach Mass, and share a story or two, or whatever you like. But talk a little bit about Coach Mass.
3: You know, he, he was uh, he really treated the managers really well you know, but but he was incredibly demanding. And, you know, it wasn't just about basketball. We were helping in the office. We were gassing the coaches' cars. We would do dry, you know, dry cleaning runs if that's what we needed to do. Um, but, you know, what's interesting looking back on it is that, you know, back then there were no director of basketball operations. You know, that wasn't a position that was established. And, you know, the, the, the third assistant was the part-time assistant, you know, and, and they were only they were limited in what they could, could make you know the staffs were fairly small coach used to give us a lot of responsibility that's my biggest thing that i remember you know it's one thing to work practice and to you know carry bags and stuff like that but you know by the time you know i was a junior and a senior you know i was the one who was going to the bursar's office to get the cash to hand out per diem and doing the expense reports for a trip and if a coach had Receipts or that they were giving it to me and I was paying them out and I was doing an expense report for every trip. And, you know, the managers were working with the business office and communicating with the hotel on rooming lists and, you know, practice coordination on the road, where you're going to practice, what time, bus transfers, communicating with the bus, you know, and, you know, no cell phones, no email. So, like, I remember all of those things, you know, was uh, unusual at the time and still even more unusual now. Um, but he, he was very inclusive. We included us in, in all of the, the team activities from, you know, going to his house to, you know, trying to bring as many managers on the road as he could. Um, you know, and he worked us, you know, and he would, he would let us know that like, you know, we were like, you know, living high on, high, high on the hog there, you know, and he would always kind of, uh, he'd love to make fun of us, which, you know, we were good targets. So that was okay. Um, but, you know, I, well, a funny story that I remember is that the 10-year anniversary of the base was my, I think, junior, sophomore year, I think, sophomore year. And we had a good run. We made it to the lead eight that year. But as part of the 10-year anniversary, um, they they did pregame, they would do um, team exchange gifts. They had it worked out that it was legal and like, So everyone was exchanging uh, a t-shirt at home and a hat on the road. So at the end of the season, everyone had like a t-shirt from, you know, all the other Big East teams and, or a hat, you know, and a hat. And, you know, it was kind of like a, a, you know, a very big Dave Gavitt thing, right? To to commemorate the 10th anniversary and it had an international flair to it. And, you know, by the time we get down to Birmingham and we're playing in the Sweet 16 and, you know, we're, we're, you know, kind of having some fun on the road, staying out later than we should. And we're working practice and coach looks at the, looks at the managers and we're down there representing Villanova and everyone's got like some other school on, you know, <laughs> everyone's got a different, a pit t-shirt, a Providence hat, some other shorts. No one's got any Villanova stuff on. And he told us that we look like a bunch of cavemen and you guys we just try, and then that was it like we were from then on we weren't managers we were cavemen for about the next four or five you know through my graduation we were just known as cavemen so it was you know kind of funny but you know a good memory nonetheless as
1: uh as coach um so you were there from 86 to 90 right 86 to 90 yeah chuck said so you're right. I mean, the team, the teams had, and the teams had done well. Talk about though, following up that '85 season, was there a lot of references to, you know, back to that squad? I mean, what was what was some it, of the things that you? It was remember? interesting
3: because you know, so I came in '86, '87. So it was like this, you know, there was a season in between, but there were still, you know, obviously Chuck was on Chuck. You were a senior when I was a freshman. You know,
0: no, um, I I got out. Doug, Doug, and Kenny and those guys were. Freshman, my my senior year, and then and then I came out. Oh, that's right. You were you were, you were out.
3: You were out in um why why Baker and yeah. Wyatt was and uh you know in Conley Brown. Yeah, uh, Jensen. There. Jensen. Uh, they were yep. the season. That's right. Mark. And um Mark Plants was there. So so there's still people who won the national championship, and you know it was it was still like we had just kind of moved in like the, the new offices were fairly new, you know, the, the DuPont was kind of fairly new because I think it opened in March of 86. And so I'm a, it's September, you know, it was towards the end of the year that it opened against Maryland. And so, and, and look, I remember one of the things I would do is I'd dub videos and we used to get all these requests for, you know, copies of the championship game. And this was back when the only duplication was two VCRs next to each other play play and record and i just remember we were just constantly making copies of the national championship for anyone who asked for it so it was it was it was uh it was still a real big part of of the program you know at at that point um no question about it
1: so so my next question is what did you do going forward to get to usa basketball
3: you know, for, for me, it, it was, um, you know, it, it ultimately was Craig, right? Mm-hmm. But I w- I wanted to be an athletic director. You know, that's what that was kind of like what I was thinking I wanted to do. And I left Villanova, and I got an internship at Georgia Tech. And I was an intern for one uh, year at Georgia Tech for Bernadette McGlade, who's now the commissioner of the Atlantic Tech. And she ran all the sports sports programs there. So I Worked for her. It was compliance and worked football, men's, women's basketball, baseball. It was was a fun time to be down there. We won the national championship in football or split it with Colorado. You know, Jason um, Veritek and uh, Nomar Garcia-Paro were on the baseball team. David Duvall was on the, you know, uh, golf team. It was it was it was cool. Eye opening. And then I went back, um, you know, coach coach was like, well, you got to go. You got to go up to UMass and get your master's in sports management. You know Glenn Wong is the uh, the head guy up there. So Glenn Wong ran the sports management program at UMass, which is you know one of the top two programs. And he played for Coach Mass at uh, Lexington High in uh, Massachusetts way back when Coach just started. So I went to UMass and got my master's, and I was fortunate enough to be a graduate assistant um, at UMass uh, for John Calipari for one year and got my master's. And um, it was a heck of a year, 92, 93. Um, We went 30 and five, 91, 92, we went 30 and five. We lost to Seton, we lost to Kentucky the game before they played Duke in the Sweet 16. And I hate to say it, Sonny, we we beat Syracuse in uh, Worcester, if you remember. I I really, I I talked to Hopkins about that game all the time. So I was there for one year and then I went to the University of Cincinnati to, to finish my master's and uh, worked in the athletic department there in marketing and compliance as an intern. And, you know, couldn't find anything after a year, w- Worked basketball camps all summer. They asked me to come back as another intern struggled again to find something. And, um, but in that time, Craig had recommended me in, in the summer of for 93 to work with the world university games in Buffalo and as a manager to Joanne Scott, who um, was the man ran the operations at at USA Basketball, and so I volunteered for USA Basketball in '93, and then I volunteered again in the summer of '94 at the Olympic Festival, and then um, hosting Germany as part of the Dream Team 2 exhibition games, and got to know you know Jim Tooley, who you know ran the men's program, and Joanne Scott, and um Joanne who now you know you you may not know who Joanne is but Joanne works for Danny as the managing director of the men's NCAA tournament um so it's kind of funny how it all kind of comes full circle so a job came open as the manager of basketball operations at at USA basketball in you know 1995 I started there in the job you know here I am I'm I'm literally two months shy of my uh, 27th birthday. I have a master's. I've been out of school for four and a half years and I take a job as manager of basketball operations for $22,000. And I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. And um, you know, wouldn't you know it? It's, it's the only full-time USA basketball is the only full-time job I've ever had in my life. You know, I've been there since February of 95. So I, I was a manager through nine through the 96 Olympics. Uh, Joanne left to go work at Nike. I was director of operations through the 2000 Olympics. And then Jim Tooley ran the men's program, became the executive director. And I slipped into the men's national team program uh, after that. So it's, uh, you know, uh, I guess luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And I was ready and just happened to be in the right place at the right time.
0: That's unbelievable, really. I mean, that's, that's quite the story, you know. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about Sonny touched on it. Let's talk about a little bit about 85 and your relationship with the guys and some of the things that went on during that run. I mean, to this day, as, as you know, and a lot of people know now that we're all very, very close through text texting and everything like that. It's the only team that I know of, Craig, that's still in touch with the with the sports information director, the trainer, the managers, the coaches, and everybody is all on this thing. So, talk about talk about some memories from our '85 run.
2: Well, we it is a a really special group, and I can say that with forty years in athletic communications and another four when I was at Albion College and playing. Um, it's a brotherhood for sure. Um, no doubt about Coach Mass bonding us all together by, uh, you know, that season was the greatest season ever until the end, very end. You know, it was a disappointing season, truthfully, as, as has been documented all the way along. And, you know, I was fortunate. I came in, Villanova was was a pretty strong team right when I started in 80. 81 you know they had Alex Bradley and Stuart Granger and John Pannone and uh, I very quickly got thrown into the, to being part of the team you know I was young enough that um, I could relate to the guys a little bit more and understand what was going on I think so I, I always really treasured being part of the teams but certainly the 85 team was an embracing group We had as Chuck as I'm sure everybody and Chuck included as alluded so much fun it was. Coach Mass let you have fun, encouraged you to have fun. You know, I think there was a saying that Sean and I have carried on: work hard, play hard. Yeah. And um, you know that that's been true at USA Basketball as well. But it started with with Coach Mass, and you know that that season didn't really stand out to me until the last pit regular season game. And I remember we got we got beat pretty good, has been documented. Starters get benched second half we're getting ready to go back and we were in vans and we stopped at. And I still remember we stopped at a Wendy's and eight. And I was with, I was with Ed and Dwayne and Gary and a couple other guys, maybe Dwight. And I remember sitting around the table eating with them and they were like, man, this will be lucky to make the NIT. You know, this, this isn't how I wanted to go out. We were supposed to go out, especially Ed adding Dwayne and Gary, you know, we we're supposed to go out champs and, um, how quickly things turn around! You know we have to we have to win one game in the Big East tournament to just make the NCA tournament, and then of course we make the NCA tournament, and we're so lucky we get to play Dayton at Dayton. And one of the one of the media guys came up to Coach Mass, and I don't remember if it was a press conference or one on one on the court, but they said to him, "You realize that Dayton is 18 and one at home this year, or something crazy number like that." And Coach Mass, without missing the beat, who was the best in comebacks, and you wouldn't think so, but he was, said to him, well, that's great, really great because we're the home team and they're visitors. So that means technically we're 18-1 here. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really make sense, but it completely spun the media guy off the track of you guys are in trouble. And of course, we win that game and then we go on and beat Michigan and you know all the rest has been documented. And it felt like to me, Each game we won, the load got lighter because it was like, well, we shouldn't be this far. We're not supposed to be this far. Nobody's expecting us to be this far. And the team just kept having fun and playing loose. And uh, I remember getting to the Final Four, and I think it was NBC or CBS. I can't remember which network came up to me and wanted us just by luck if we happened to make it to and win it all. She just wanted to make sure that they had first crack at the morning show on the day after the championship and she goes I don't think we'll I don't think we'll be talking again but if we do just remember I was the first one to ask you." and uh it's pretty funny because after we win it all she came up to me and said I remember we talked you promised to, if we it, we could have someone right away you know and and uh so I I think that was kind of the attitude all the way going along was just win 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 and then of course playing Georgetown every you know Hoya Paranoia was at the max at that point and um I think you know, for most Big East teams, there wasn't as much of a fear of Georgetown because you played them twice a year, maybe three times a year. And, you know, I know Ed had played, you know, played them for four years plus played Patrick in high school. So there wasn't quite that intimidation factor that they would have had over a non-conference opponent. And I, I really think that benefited us when we got to uh, the championship game. And then you know the final part of that, of course, is Coach Mass just being the master motivator, and uh, you know he always found a way. To me, it seemed like to to take the focus or pressure off the team, and put it put it off to the side, and uh, you know consequently the team would be relaxed and 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 play up to the abilities that you know even probably the team wasn't totally aware that they could play to.
1: Well, Craig, you realize what happened, right? Dwayne, Gary, and Ed all came there because your enhanced recruiting brochures. <laughs> you know? them on I didn't want right.
2: to. I didn't want to self-promote, but you know. I mean, right. You know, take
1: it, take it. You know, you're accountable. Right.
2: Hey, I, I did come up man. with. I did come up with the Stu Granger, put him in a horse, a white horse, a mask, and did the Lone Granger All-American <laughs> flyer, I think that had a lot to do with it.
0: There you yeah. go. Now, Craig, let me, now that you mentioned that, because I remember that poster coming out very well. I remember the whole thing. Was, was there any kind of, was he all right with getting on a horse? And no. Working? You know, <laughs> oh, he's a guy from Brooklyn. I mean. Absolutely not.
2: You know. Never been on a horse. And the horse, I was, it was Jim Browns, who was our business manager. It was a horse on his farm and, and uh, a land that he was living on. And Stu had never been on the horse, ever. <laughs> And lo, 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 we get him in a white mask, and we put him on this horse, and the horse starts moving, and he's looking around like, what do I do? Get me and, off. <laughs> uh, every, everybody there, the photographer, everybody says, well, just lighten up off in the range. You're, you're scaring him by pulling the rein so tight. <laughs> and so he kind of did, and the horse was still moving around. We managed to get Dave Kosky, I think, took the photos. If I'm not mistaken, um, and we managed, we managed to get a, a great photo of it, in, and it got a lot of notoriety, which is what, what you wanted for Villanova, right. you know, you're trying to, and uh, you know, Stu is Stu is a good guy about the whole thing.
0: It was a good play on words, the Lone Granger. He still he still is called that in some circles, you know. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. It was pr- pretty good. It was pretty creative. Uh, whoever came up That's with that, that good. was that was great. Um, awesome. So, Sean, now now that you're, you know, you now you get, we get to the, um, the USA team and you're working with these guys. What are, what are some of your early memories of some of the, uh, some of the players that you had to deal with and how was that coming from, you know, being, the, being a manager at a program and then being an intern and now all of a sudden you're working with these, with these uh, players. Now at that point there was still some college players, right? Or was that already done and the, and the pros were already involved?
3: your pros were already involved, you know, but, you know, you got to remember we're dealing with uh, multiple levels of teams at USA basketball. So every year, you you know, you have some high school teams, you have some college teams and you have some, some professional teams. So, you know, you're dealing with different groups, but, you know, it's funny. A lot of the things like, like Craig, you know, said earlier, a lot of the things that, you know, was ingrained at Villanova and some of the things that were learned And, and uh, the, uh, you know, the accountability, but the trust factor, I mean, I still, to this day, feel like my job is to, is to earn people's trust. Okay, and then, but the thing about trust is that you never stop earning it. You know, it's not something that you, you, you have, and then you take it for a ride, you never take trust for a ride. Okay, you just rely on it. Okay, uh, when needed because they know that you're being honest with them, you know? So, so I think that's, you know, one of the things, you know, another thing too is, and, and what I learned, you know, with coach mass and the coaches is that if you were going to work for someone and, and be held accountable and, and do a lot of things for them, it's a lot easier if you start thinking like them. Okay. Because yeah. then they might not need to have to ask for things, you know, like a lot of people say, Hey, are, you know, are these people high maintenance, you know, and I, I look at it really, you know, succinctly that when you, when you talk about maintaining people, you're really talking about how are you dealing with their requests, you know, because maintenance is when people ask for things that they want. And I think our job is to put them in a position where they don't have to ask for anything, try to get to know them well enough and prepare enough to where, you know, you're you're going to provide what they need, and if if it's not provided, um, you know it's it's an it's an extreme request, and yeah. you can fall back on the trust that you've built up, and say like, hey, look, let let me let me look into it, you know, but I, I don't know if we can do it, but you know, I'm going to try, and you know, if you can do part of it or if you can't do it, you can explain why and you can fall back on the trust. So, you know, I feel like that's that's kind of how you deal with every. Every team and every person, whether they're a player, you know, a medical staff, a coach, um, you earn the trust you keep their trust and you try to be prepared enough to, you know, keep them low maintenance, low maintenance. I mean, as a manager and as, um, you know, our whole job at USA Basketball is to allow elite level coaches and elite level players to you know, do their jobs and do what they're good at and and lead, and take care of everything else so that they only have to focus on, you know, the job at hand for them. You know, and sometimes that is, you know, it can it can lead you to a lot of different places. Okay. And it can it could mean that you're taking care of some people that are just friends of theirs or their family or their like, but the 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 less they have to worry about things like that, the more you're going to get the person that you want when, when you need them. Yeah. Right. time, Right. You know, and, and so it's, you know, it's a fine, it's a fine line between enabling them and supporting them. But I I think you gotta, you gotta walk that line because if you're going to accomplish anything, that's, that's really, really, you know, at another level, um, you don't, you don't accomplish it unless you get to a state of being very fragile, right. Where it's, it's, it's nip and tuck as you're going through it. And, you know that that's that's when you know you've you're you're doing you're on the verge of something special
0: do guys come in sean <laughs> with like a different type of attitude like on their teams they're the best guys on their teams or one of two or three best yeah. guys on their teams now this is like elite so now when when you when you bring these guys together um you know they kind of have to give up a little of their game to to get to the common goal of, of winning a gold medal yeah, or no, like a championship Richard. or
3: It's difficult. You know, it is really difficult for everyone. It's difficult for a player to sacrifice. And it's it's very easy to to verbalize what you want to do. It's another thing to actually have that lead to actions, you know, because it's it's hard. It's really hard. And I think it's our job to make it easier for them. And, you know, it's things that you you talk about it. And and you know, one of the things that helps is. Um, you know, the coaches are, you know, do a great job of communicating with players before they actually get to camp, you know, and, and, and talk through some things. Um, and it, it, but it's, it's hard. The one thing that, that helps a lot for us, the more elite that we get, when we get to the world cup and the Olympics, majority of the players we've had since high school, you know, we've had them come through in high school and a little bit in college, you know, we, we knew them, we know them. And, and there's a trust factor there. So, yeah. um, you know, again, we're building trust at another level, but you have the ability to cut through a lot of things and and talk to them and say like, Hey, you know, this, you know, here's what we're going to need from you. And, and, you know, you're and and look for us, you know, it's, we never win something really big without everyone at some point helping us win a game. You know, and, and that's that's really what everyone's going to have their moment, you know, yeah. and and what we, you know, Jeff Van came up with a great line. He said, you know, when you play for USA basketball, no one asks how many points you had. They just ask, did you win? And it's right. true. Hey, Ch- Chuck, I'm sorry. I just want to add one other thing.
2: Sean, Sean has hit on some really important things, but I think he's underselling the value that he's put in the program. It's not just the winning the gold. It's the fact that these guys come back again and again. If it isn't a great experience, they're not coming back. Right. And Sean makes sure, he does, he makes sure it's a great experience for, for our players. And uh, I think any player you talk to will will tell you that. it Not only was winning great, but we were, they were taken care of the way that you would hope that they think they should be taken care of. And, and Sean won't say that, but he does a tremendous job of, as he said, anticipating every need that they or the coaches need and making sure that um, they have it. So uh, again, to me, the proof is you ask these guys, would you come back for the next Olympics? And almost all of them would say yes. Even though some of them never do because of aging or because of injuries right. Right. or turnover, but it isn't because they don't want to come back. they want taste of it. They're ready to come back.
0: And And that experience guys goes right from the littlest things like accommodations and, and, having the right, you know, things around you from food and everything else. Right. When you're in a foreign country and you're not used to being there, it's, you got to really think of all that stuff then, I guess, huh, Sean?
3: It is, you know, it's, it's, we bring a chef, um, you know, we make arrangements for um, players to get haircuts. I mean, you know, it's, it's not, it's not as easy, you know, for, for, you know, the players, you know, you, you have, (laughs) You have different voltage over there. It's hard to hold clippers still. You can't trim yourself. Like we, we, we it's, you know, we try to get them haircuts before we, you know, we, we leave the country and we time it out. And you know, we, we actually in, in Tokyo, um, because of COVID and all that, it was really hard. Um, we got in touch with um, the the Air Force base that was about an hour away from uh, where we were. And you know, got, you know, the, one of their um, barbers from there that, you know, was, was trusted and, and some international players who play professionally in Tokyo had used them and, and he came and then, you know, some people kind of tried him out it was okay. And you know, like, the, you know, cause it's a big deal. And, but that, it's that, those things, that's the thing, it's really important. Um, wow. so those, yeah, all those little, little things, um, uh, make a big difference.
1: Oh, Craig, I, I got to ask you, we got, we got to go into the dream team. I've been, I've been dying to get into to, to some of this. So talk about, I remember when that all started to percolate, you know, Chuck Daly and, and, you know, Chuck has that persona and the suits and everything. And now you've got this blend of off the chart talents, little generational talents. How was that putting that team together? And then how was that for you in terms of, dealing with all the players and, and maybe some of their personnel personalities, what have you, how was that?
2: Well, it, it was a perfect storm, truthfully. And, and, uh, at the time, you know, Dave Gavitt, CM Newton, Russ Granick, David Stern, Bill Wall, who is the executive director at USA basketball and, and, uh, Tom McGrath are really the leaders of, of pulling the NBA players in and, and, uh, First time, of course, players have been NBA players have been eligible for FIBA competition because previously the rules prevented only NBA players from playing in FIBA events because they were the only ones considered pro. Um, so uh, you know, when I took the job, when I when I, I was interested in the job, I met with Russ Granick, CM Newton, um Dave Gavitt. And one of the things I I really wanted to know was how much support was I, would I have from the administration of USA Basketball to do a program? Because there had never been a communications officer at USA Basketball. And um, Dave Gavin, CM Newton, immediately said, we want your recommendations. We want whoever gets hired. We're going to be supportive. This is going to be America's team. So they had already thought ahead of where they were going and Knew that they had to have an open door policy to some degree, and you know, every every component needed. You know, Chuck was a great hire. You know, you had PJ, you had uh, Coach K. Um, you know, so you you had uh, uh, an amazing coaching staff ready to go, and the players themselves. You know, it was a different era. The players themselves didn't have million followers on social media. They they're their following really came through TV and through their games, which even even back in 92, you know, not basketball wasn't as heavily broadcast as it is today. You know, today you can find almost any team playing every night. Um, and back then, you know, you had to be the premier teams and premier games. So um, it was a different time. But, uh, you know, we – we uh, the, the other thing was it was unknown. Uh, had we known what was going to blow up and how it would blow up, I'm sure it would have been much more pressurized and a lot more meetings and a lot more planning. But you know, we did the basics and then we we flew with it as we as we went along as things got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, you were just kind of riding that crest and trying to make sure. My job I was trying to make sure that players were accessible, that uh, media had media had access to. Practices so they felt like it was America's team and they were living the history and seeing the history. I I remember after the first two days of practice in San Diego, as luck had had it, when we let media in, it was toward the end of practice and all that they, they were getting was the team shooting free throws, and the San Diego media started calling it the Olympic free throw team. <laughs> and uh, I went to I went to. Uh, Russ Granick and CM and Dave Gavitt again and, and Chuck Daly and said, hey, we got we to get media in for more than just the free throws at the end of practice. And uh, to Chuck's credit, he said, okay, well, we'll do some weaves and some drills, some shooting drills at the end of practice. I'll throw them in there and, and they'll get that. And that completely erased the free throw Olympic team, but uh, it gave everybody a great feel. And, and, of course, you know, we had a contingent following us and then it just became – each step became more historic you know the the select team winning the one game the against you know short and scrimmaged against the uh uh the nba guys and then we went to monte carlo and um you know just again it just it it kept growing and growing and uh you look back on it and by the end it was so much bigger than anything else that you could ever imagine but You know, even though we knew it was going to be big, did we know it was going to be that big? No, absolutely not. I don't think anybody says that they did um, would be lying.
1: Well, at the time, right, there was was some definite controversy. I mean, Magic Johnson was HIV positive and had retired from the NBA, and there was NBA guys that that were talking sitting out. They won't play against them. Now, here you are putting that team together. Now, I don't know if anybody on that team had that stance, but, you know, that had to create – some uh, challenges for you talk about that a little bit
2: well the you know truthfully the nba helped clear a lot of those roadblocks because of the fact of him coming back for the all-star game
3: yes playing
2: um his certainly his friendships with michael
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and some of the other players made it much easier because they were supportive of him. they weren't Mm -hmm. worried about it you know and this is a this is a period if you go back and look was a pretty ignorant period on AIDS at that right. time. You know, exactly. there there wasn't much knowledge of it. There were, I, I think it was Australia that said they wouldn't play us originally. They came out and said that if, if we yeah. had to play them. Yeah, there, and, was, there uh, was a
1: lot of stuff swirling around there and it wasn't right, there was. It was it was going on. But I so. think,
2: you know, when Michael spoke or Charles spoke, it carried so much weight that it it just alleviated. And, and I, I, I think the all-star game, if I remember right, was right before that. And uh, you know, Magic played in the All-Star game and helped. Um, that really helped um, break up the fears and and uh, and put the focus back on having the eleven greatest NBA players and probably the best college player in a long, long period of time, and Christian Legner on on the
1: team.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. very you, true. You you mentioned that select team of of college guys that came in and and they won that scrimmage. You know, that's a very famous story that's been documented and everything how you know did did chuck you know chuck's genius so that you know he made it you know so that it was definitely going to be a win for the for the kids team you know and we talk about that and what that meant to the psyche of um, these superstars that were there on the dream team
2: i just think it um i don't know that chuck thought they could win I remember that what he wanted the emphasis on was nothing but three-point shots, which was a little bit more of the European flair. You know, you drive, you got a layup. Instead of taking a layup, you're throwing it to the baseline guy right. for a three. And that's what he told the team that he really wanted. Shoot the three. Don't be afraid to pull up and do it. You got to get used to, get used to that. And it just happened that day. Everybody was making everything. And, uh, you know, of course, the out is always it wasn't a 40-minute game. You know, it was a little bit shorter, and, and, uh, uh, the, and then the fact the next day they the, the selecting barely could score when, the, yeah. you know, they decided to put it to it. So I think it was just awakening to them that on any night anybody could win. But, you know, the one of the things that had struck me at the, at the Olympics that year was um, the other teams, and again, I, t- I talked about it earlier, Villanova-Georgetown, there wasn't an all-factor because you played so much regularly against each other. Well, in 1992, there was an all-factor for whoever was playing the Dream Team. And, you know, it's all been documented, the photos and the exchange of gifts and everything along those lines. But there was definitely, when they stepped on the court, I think you already had a had an advantage because the other teams were in awe. And I, Sean and I have both seen that, that go away. You know, now it's, so what, they're an NBA player, so am I. And matter of fact, I, I'm the MVP or, you know, I'm all league two or whatever. So that there is no more uh, fear of playing NBA guys like there was then. You know, that was there was just so few international players who just started to come into the NBA back in 91, 92. And so that was really the, the, the biggest change was just the familiarity and um, losing that allness.
0: Yeah, He's I got so one. So. I have one more dream team question for you, Craig, and then I want to touch on what you just said about other players and how the game's changing. That that scrimmage that they had, where it was uh, pretty much a showdown with with Michael and Magic. You know, the one that the greatest uh, game that nobody really saw.
2: Monte Carlo. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you were one of the few guys that that was there for that, right? Did you get to see that, and what was that like?
2: Well. It- Every day was like that, truthfully. It yeah, just happened right. to be amped up that day. And, you know, none of those guys was shy of talking crap. So the more enjoyable part that I remember was riding the bus back after practices because whoever got beat, whoever got dunked on, whatever team lost, man, they were in for a bus ride of bus ride of hate. You know, there was uh, nothing spared. And, uh, you know, the guys would live that moment that, that hey, remember – Uh, remember this play when this happened to you, you know how that goes, Chuck and and Sonny. But if you can imagine every play being amplified like that, and I I remember walking into the practice because, you know, we had media and I was trying to do different things, so I wasn't just watching the whole practice. But I think it was maybe Carl Malone dunked on somebody, and you knew going the other end, that person was getting the ball and going to the basket and going to dunk back on him because otherwise it was going to be an unbearable trip home. And, uh, you know, It just showed the competitive nature of those guys. And and one thing Sean and I have talked about, it's pretty interesting when you put these teams together because, you know, you talk about a lot of these guys are alphas anyway, but who's the alpha of alphas, right? Because that that comes out in these, ultimately at these types of uh, scrimmages and practices and and games. And, you know, you certainly saw that Michael Jordan was probably for that team, the alpha of of the alphas yeah and uh you know other teams it's been other people but it's that was really an interesting time and like I said they had so much pride and they talked so much crap that you just couldn't you couldn't if something happened to you you better get back down the other and make make some sort of equal payment otherwise yeah you were in a world of hurt
1: and wasn't Larry Bird battling like his back he was he was just not himself and he had didn't he travel like didn't like a chiropractor or a massage therapist travel with him? I mean, wasn't there a lot of concern about his health?
2: There was. I mean, his back was very bad. And we flew and actually had a it, it was a a charter flight and and uh, I think it was the Pistons maybe flight like their plane that they used and they actually had a space that was like a bed that he would use for uh, the flight uh, to Europe uh, so that his back could be rested and. Um, you know, he was trying to do everything he could to to contribute. And at times, I you know, I remember uh, it was like Germany or somebody we were playing. He had a big game where he had 18 points and really kind of had a one of those moments where he started to shoot the ball and you, you saw him. But he was, you know, he wasn't the Larry Bird for a few years earlier where he dominated on the court. His pack just wasn't allowing it at that time, which was kind of sad. And, you know, we had other injuries. We had John Stockton broke his leg early in the training camp. Good. We had... Patrick Ewing fractured a finger, got a caught in the net, in the rim and was out for a couple games. And and uh, so, you know, you had your you had some of that going on and, you know, you had magic and the concerns about could he could he stay healthy for all the games? And um, fortunately, you know, for the most part, everybody was healthy and the rest, as
0: they say, is history. Sean, talk, you know, Craig mentioned, you know, a little bit and I wanted to go back and touch on it, the awe factor of. Playing the NBA guys, and now Europe, uh, the 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 evolution of the game is is more of a European style of play now. And the the evolution, you know, it's not it's not a guarantee that you know United States is going to come in and win. You know, I mean, we saw that it was a it was a tough battle this past Olympics that you guys got to uh, enjoy the victor, the victory. But it, it, talk about that and how. And how that's changed and kind of how the rest of the world is starting to catch up or has caught up.
3: You know, it's really interesting. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You know, what you find, though, is that um, when you get to, you know, the quarterfinals, you know, of the Olympic Games or the World Cup, you're playing against other NBA players. You know, you're, you're all the starters are pretty much NBA players or four of the five starters. And mm-hmm. those that aren't, it probably, they choose to not play in the NBA because they can make more money where they are over in Europe. But they're, they're that level of player. You know, what we find is that you, when you get to that, you know, the NBA has changed over time also. I mean, the shot making in the NBA right now is off the charts. I mean, the shots that the guys are making... But they also the free, freedom of movement yeah, that goes yep. on in the NBA and, and the, the la- some of the lack of physicality.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, the international game is incredibly more physical than the NBA game. So it's like you're playing a little bit of a different game. And, you know, we're finding out that, like, you know, the 48-minute game versus a 40-minute game is a lot different. You know, you have less possessions. You can't coast through the first quarter like you can in an NBA game. You know, you can't, you know, the games finish easier because you can't call timeout. You can't stop play with a timeout and, you know, NBA players, um, when they play for their country, you know, they, they like, they, they like got a cape on, right. It's a lot different, you know, when, when, um, when they're playing for their country, they're, they're, they're top dog and it's, it's really, it's hard. It's really hard. And, you know, we need some of that alpha dog, you know, we're, we're not used to playing, you know, defense against, you know, a team that's, that's running offense, as opposed to running ISO, you know, there's no illegal defense in the international game. So, you know, people are are zoning up certain players. Um, we're not used to, we're probably having to defend, you know, rather than one pick and roll, we're, we're defending, you know, four and five pick and rolls on a possession and probably, three to five more passes per possession which means you know three to four different more decisions of possession that the NBA guys aren't used to making and so it, it's it's a real different thing to get them up to speed and playing against these guys so yeah the, the, it's a different game um, it's played at, a, at an incredibly high level and you know we have to play as a unit and we need some alpha dog you talk about that. Kevin Durant was the alpha dog this summer. You know, he was just at another level. And you really, when, when we have these teams together, it really, it's amazing how good, you know, the top 10 to 15 to 20 players in the NBA are. It is just amazing how good they are. And, um,
1: it looks too uh, easy when you watch it. It looks
3: looks really easy. easy. And, you know, you get spoiled, you don't realize how fast NBA players are playing and how fast they're running because they're all moving fast. You know, so it's not like one is significantly faster. they are all moving fast. But the pace of that game versus a college game is is like night and day. But they're, they're size, just
1: the physical size, right?
3: They, 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 you know, they're always sprinting, you know, like a lot of times, you know, in a high school game, some college games, not all college games. You can tell when a player is jogging and when he's sprinting, you know, because of the exertion of effort when they're sprinting. Well, NBA guys, they're such conditioned that they're sprinting and they look like gazelles out there. They just long strides and it doesn't look it looks effortless and they are so fast. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: Do you think yeah. the NBA is going to go to that wider lane like the like the European?
3: Well, the, the European, to be honest with you, they're all the same lane now. Um, I'd say about, gosh, 10, you know, maybe 10 years ago, um, it, was a, it was actually an extraordinary comment, I, I feel, by Boris Stankovic, um, who was the longtime secretary general of FIBA. And FIBA made some adjustments. FIBA went to the NBA line, okay, and they, they adjusted the three point line to be more like the NBA. And his comment was, You know, he no longer like when you watch a soccer match, regardless of where the soccer match is being played, you say that's a soccer match where it got to be a point and we'll never get fully away from it, but it got to be where like, okay, that's an NBA game. That's an international game. That's a college game. And he was like trying to get to like, hey, why don't we have the court look alike so they can say it's just a basketball game? Right. And, you know, the trapezoid lane, what's interesting about it, Sonny, is um the, the block, the lower block, the trapezoid lane versus the NBA lane, the lower block was really like less than six inches of difference, just the way the angles went, you know, so the block stayed the same, you just kind of squared it out ra- rather than triangle. So it's been that way for a long time. I don't know that there'll be many more changes. Um, I think it'll be like kind of how it is, you know, moving forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, you know, you talked about the, you know, the difficulty and stuff of, of playing and that, you know, and how good these guys are, how good were the guys They they came, this year was a little bit different because they came, the, the championship series was a little later than usual because of all the stuff going on with COVID. Right. You had guys come literally right from the championship, right to the, right to the Olympics. Right. That's pretty right. Pretty
3: That's right. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, Chris, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday and, and Devin Booker, you know, they finished up in the championship game. So they didn't participate in any of the training camp. And we were actually, we arrived in Tokyo on a, on a Tuesday. They didn't get there till the following Monday, Like well, you know, Sunday night, Monday at, uh, you know, about 1.30 in the morning. And, you know, that later that day at nine o'clock in the evening, we played France in our uh, first game. Yep. yep. And, and they played in the game and they actually played well. But um, they 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 participated in the shoot around, but they never really practiced with the team, and so you know we we had our work cut out for us. But the the good news is that they were in they were in great shape, so it wasn't a conditioning thing, and uh, they they were they're both the, all three of them are such elite players um, that it, it wasn't an issue um, to to get them going. You know it's funny one of the the lines for Coach Popovich was you know, and, and, and I think that everyone really bought in on this. The other teams were who they are. Like they weren't, they, they weren't going to get any better at the Olympics, but we were had the ability to get better each game. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of what we focused on. And we played our best game last when we had to.
0: Okay. So last question, guys, we're running up against it. And I appreciate both you guys being here. Talk to me about what it was like to win your your last Olympics Craig for you and I'm sure you've got many more Sean but to be with Jay and be able to share that experience with Jay Wright as you you guys are both Villanova guys what was that like for you guys
3: go ahead Craig oh, you're on mute Craig I don't
2: know if you know but Jay and I lived together for for two years when he was at Villanova and I was sports information director, he was maybe the part-time assistant or grad assistant. And I had this duplex uh, right off of uh, Lancaster, a couple miles from Villanova. And we had this, it was a three-story duplex. And the top story was the pitch ceiling. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And uh, there was a bedroom up there. And uh, uh, I had another roommate, my brother was living with me. And Jay took the third, third bedroom upstairs and we had no air conditioning. And, oh. uh, you know, how hot yeah. Philly would get, let alone oh. being under yeah, the roof. Oh. We it, <laughs> you could, you could tell him, we talked, we called it the prison cell.
3: And, uh,
2: he'd come out of the prison cell just sweating without even having worked out at all. So I got to know Jay pretty well during, during that period. And then, you know, he's been involved in USA basketball on and off and, uh, it was such a great experience to to finish my uh, my USA basketball tenure with him. Um, he's so genuine, and he's and he's so so basketball smart, um, and he's just tremendously fun to be around. I I can't speak enough to him. He, whether he's head coach, assistant coach, um, grad assistant, he's the same guy that he was in 1987 in the in the prison cell. In, up in the attic, sweating it out with us. And uh, uh, it made it much more enjoyable for me to be with him and be able to share some stories. And, you know, his wife has been a good friend to me through the years as well. And, and uh, I was, I know all that he sacrificed to do this. And uh, to me, it was really rewarding to see the coaching staff in the locker room celebrating the gold medal. Um, and it was different than other Olympics because as Sean just spoke to, it wasn't assumed that we were going to win. We had to play well. We really had to had to battle coaches really had to coach and uh, it's a credit to coach pop and coach, Wright, uh, What they gave and what they did. And it just, it, for me, I couldn't, couldn't end it on a better note. It really, I really couldn't.
0: How about you, Sean, being there with Jay?
3: Yeah. You know, it was really special. I mean, what's funny is I remember driving Steve Lapis in gosh, the summer of 87 to Trenton, New Jersey for um, the Eastern Invitational to go recruit. And we were watching Mark Dell Del play on an outdoor court. All right. And, and one of the, and what's really funny is Stan Van Gundy was officiating the game. He was a counselor. At that <laughs> was funny, right. And, uh, but we were really there to pick up Jay who was an assistant coach at Drexel to bring him back to the, uh, to Villanova's campus, you know, cause camp was going on so the coach could hire him as you know um the part-time assistant because um you know we um i think marty had just gone to uh uh, uh fairfield fairfield and or marty had gone down to canisius I canisius think. yeah yeah canisius, and, um, and so like that was kind of fun and then you know for three years as a manager i worked for jay i mean i used to do his dry cleaning gas his car do the tickets with him like anything he wanted like i was his guy so to go full circle and, you know, to be at that. And, you know, it's not easy being the lone college coach. You know, if if you think about it um, there had been two college coaches on every staff all the way up until this staff, it was the only staff that we've ever had with one college coach, you know? And so that's not easy, you know, and, and to learn the NBA language and to earn the trust of the NBA players and, You know, look, Pop loved him. The coaches loved him. You know, he did a great job. But, you know, what was was awesome for Jay was that, you know, France was Jay's scout. Okay, you know, they you know, like they trusted Jay and he was their scout. And, you know, like we kind of let the first France game like that was a winnable game that, you know, kind of slipped away from us. But we grew a lot over two weeks. Right. But, you know, here we are, the gold medal game. And Jay, you know, the morning of the game before we're going, you know, like the, uh, I guess it's the day before the game, because the game is at 1130 in the morning, we're going to practice and Jay gets up in front of, you know, 12 NBA players and three NBA, you know, coaches and, you know, did the scouting report on France and like knocked it out of the park. He was like on it. He was great. Um, The guys were locked in. And even, you know, when we, when we finished and we went to the bus, you know, everyone's like, man, that was awesome. Like Jay killed it. And I was just really happy for him because, you know, he's he's uh, not a lot of people would know that. Right. right. And, and, and would think that they wouldn't give Jay the scout for like he he, he killed it. And it was great. And um, no surprise. Right. But uh, from from people that know him. But I was really um, I was really happy for him in that moment. Um, to be able to share not just the whole experience, but the culmination of doing that and then and then winning right in, in the locker room. You know, we, I have a great picture that, you know, uh, he, Jay had someone take of, you know, Jay and, and, and Craig and myself and pop. You yeah. know, and we got champagne bottles in the locker room and we're making pop an honorary Villanova guy. It was pretty cool. So, yeah, it was great to share it with them, but it was great to see him excel in the moment when he had to.
0: Here's something real quick. I know people have asked me this, and I I don't know the answer to it, never having been there myself. But the team itself gets the gold medals, right? Does the coaching staff get gold medals? Do you guys, or is it is it rings that you guys get?
3: We get rings. the The players get the medals. You know, right? Um, so it's it's um, you know we try to do like little replicas, kind of. It's it's it it's it's meaningful, but you know the 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 players get the medals it's it's kind of always been that way and you know you wish it was different but you understand the the logistical nightmare of of everyone you know so many more medals that that you would get but
0: yeah right um
3: we do do rings and uh you know they they're special
0: how many and and how many olympics have each of you been to and and uh been on the the winning side of of in your careers well,
3: you, you got eight, Craig, and I'm seven? I got nine because I did eight, too.
0: You got I nine. Did
3: I did yeah, nine. It was a <laughs> great number.
2: I did nine because I did track and field in 88 in Korea uh, when I was at Villanova. That's how I kind of got interested in the Olympic movement and NGBs and all of that. But seven <laughs> seven goals, one bronze
0: That's uh, pretty good record. That's all right. You got, you got more rings than, than Bill Russell then. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, more or less. Counting the world (laughs) championship as well.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for being with us. Our guests today have been Sean Ford, the um, men's team director of USA basketball and Craig Miller, chief communications officer of USA men's basketball. We appreciate you guys both, uh, you know, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming out and sharing some thank time with us. Thank you very much, guys. Great. Yeah.
2: Thank you. This is awesome. Thanks, Sonny and Chuck. Appreciate it was really it. fun. Yeah. Really Anytime.
0: fun. Anytime. Yep. Thanks. You've been listening to The Big East Rewind with Chuck Everson and Sonny Sparrow. The Big East Rewind is produced and directed by Nick Chico Chorus and Daryl Gurney. You can check us out on Twitter at Big East Rewind. And all of our shows you can get wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify and iTunes and also on YouTube put Big East Rewind in the search bar. Thanks a lot for joining us, everyone. Have a great night.